Welcome to the History of the World podcast. My name is Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 2, The Ancient World. This is Episode 16. Last episode, we discussed Tutankhamun, the boy who became the pharaoh at the age of nine and reverted the religion of Egypt back to the traditional and popular polytheistic belief system to the delight, praise and adulation of the Egyptian population. It is believed that Tutankhamun may have died of an infection to a leg wound possibly caused by falling from a chariot, although he wasn't the healthiest human being and there are also signs of malaria following DNA analysis. Tutankhamun's tomb appeared to have escaped the attention of tomb raiders, potentially rendered inaccessible by a sandstorm. Tutankhamun's father, Akhenaten, was the man who attempted to completely alter the religion of Egypt and in his vain attempts, he is guilty of losing territories under Egyptian control. Sixteen years after Akhenaten's reign, the new pharaoh and last of the 18th dynasty called Horemheb went to great lengths to extinguish any buildings, monuments and references to the Amarna period, which refers to the period when Akhenaten had moved the capital city during his attempted redirection of the religious position of the kingdom. After Horemheb, the 18th dynasty ended with Egypt stabilised. It would be Horemheb's trusted vizier, a man of non-royal stock, who would be the new pharaoh, and the man whose bloodline would become the 19th dynasty. He would come to be known as Ramesses I. His son took over soon afterwards as the pharaoh Seti I. Seti became the pharaoh of the new kingdom of Egypt at the start of the 13th century BCE. Seti would continue the tradition of strong post-Amana period monarchs. Seti's reign is noted for some incredible temple construction and for his campaigns into the Asiatic lands. Seti would successfully keep control over the Nubians in the south and the Libyans in the west. Seti would expand his influence through the Levant as far as Kadesh, which was under Hittite influence. This would mark the start of a long phase of intense international affairs between the Egyptians and the Hittites. So that brings our story into the 13th century BCE, but before we go any further, we shall now start the episode properly. Now, I want to take you back to the reign of the last monarch of the 18th dynasty, Horemheb, the pharaoh who made a great effort to expunge the Amarna period from Egyptian memory. The year is 1303 BCE. The History of the World podcast presents a profile of the Pharaoh Ramesses II. Birth and Childhood Horemheb is the Pharaoh of Egypt and he is aided by his loyal vizier whose name was Paramesi. We'll come back to that. We know that Paramesi had a son called Seti, so called after Paramesi's own father, an Egyptian soldier named Seti, of course. Paramesi's son, Seti, had a wife called Tuya, 
and in the year 1303 BCE, or thereabouts, Seti and Chua would have a son. This young baby boy would become Ramesses II, otherwise known as Ramesses the Great. Initially, though, he was purely the baby grandson of the vizier to the pharaoh Horemheb. There was absolutely no way that it could be expected that this young baby would ever become a significant person in history. Nonetheless, we certainly know differently today. So Ramesses II was born into a world where Egypt was strong and his own grandfather was one of the most trusted administrators of the kingdom. However, the pharaoh Horemheb was now becoming elderly and had no issue to whom to pass the kingdom upon his impeding passing into the afterlife. So he would have to look for someone of suitable ability to take over and when he looked at his own vizier he saw a man very capable of doing the job. Often it would be consorts or viziers who would take over this role as a matter of fact. So it would be Ramesses II's grandfather who would be taken over as the pharaoh of the Egyptian kingdom when Horemheb died. Paramesi would be the right man to keep the rebellious tribes of Nubia, Libya and Syria in check. Upon his accession, he would change his name to Ramesses in honour of Ra, the Egyptian god of the sun. So now, Ramesses II would become an extremely important young man in the direct line of the current pharaoh. He was no more than around 11 years of age and given the honorary title of the Commander-in-Chief of the Army. It was only around 18 months into Ramesses I's reign as pharaoh that he died and passed the throne to his son and Ramesses II's father, Seti, who reigned as pharaoh Seti I. During his childhood, Ramesses II would have been brought up in royal palaces and as such, subject to the best education that the kingdom could offer. Learning to write, Egyptian art and combat skills would have been things that Ramesses II was exposed to at a young age as he clearly lined up for great responsibility. After the death of his grandfather and the accession of his father, Ramesses II would have been taken on military campaigns alongside his father Seti I. As a teenager, Ramesses was now a young man and he would have been no older when he was married to a great royal wife, Nefertari, no more than a child herself. Nefertari was intelligent and well-educated, so she would make the perfect companion to the pharaoh-in-waiting. Becoming Pharaoh Seti I would have been a young man when Ramesses II was born, so when Seti I died, in around the year 1279 BCE, it would have undoubtedly have been a major shock for everybody. Seti's mummified remains showed no signs of physical violence to suggest death during battle. He may have died of a heart attack or something similar, but he was certainly around the age of 40, which was relatively young for a man of such high standing. Ramesses would have been a young man now in his 20s. So although his father's death may have been unexpected, Ramesses would have been well prepared by those around him throughout his life. One of his first royal duties would have been to travel to Thebes to officiate his father's funeral ceremony at the Theban necropolis. The funeral temple complex of Seti I is a considerable construction and this is typical of the grand construction projects of this particular Egyptian age. Ramesses was now Ramesses II, the pharaoh of the Egyptian kingdom, 
and he would instigate a number of construction projects to stamp his mark on the kingdom. Temples would have been erected at Thebes, Memphis, Karnak and Abu Simbel. However, despite all of the attempts by Ramesses to leave a lasting legacy and honour the deities of the land, the land still had to be protected and provided for. So military defence and offence were both vitally important as soon as Ramesses became the pharaoh. The construction projects would initially have to wait. Firstly, it appears that the Mediterranean coast of Egypt was being subjected to raids. The raids were being conducted by seafarers, which meant that defending the land bridge to Asia, namely the Sinai Peninsula, was not enough. Considerable warriors were attacking from the sea, and we see them being referred to historically as the Sherdan people. Ramesses II certainly knew of the Sherdan people, and knew that they were a force to be taken seriously. These people were very well equipped and very dangerous, and Egypt needed a good strong leader to deal with the issue. Not only did Ramesses II deal with the problem, but he also managed to coerce some of the Sheridan warriors to become part of his own army. And this is depicted in Stele relating to Asiatic campaigns. Many historians refer to these as among the first known sea peoples, but this is too early to be associating them with the late Bronze Age collapse, which would not be a major issue until a hundred years later. Ramesses II would turn his attention towards the lands of the Levant and the main rival for land and resource, the Hittites. Ramesses would launch a number of campaigns into Canaanite lands during the 1270s. Remarkably, the Sheridan seafarers who joined Ramesses's Egyptian army were actually described by Ramesses himself as originally being allied to the Hittites. His own father, Seti I, had taken the city of Kadesh after the Hittites under Sipiluliuma I had taken advantage of the civil crisis in Egypt during the Yamana period of the 14th century BCE. After Seti I's death, the Hittites under Muwatali II had moved in to take the city back. Ramesses II was not going to let this go and in 1274 BCE he launched his biggest campaign yet from a modern military centre constructed near the old Hyksos capital at Avaris. 20,000 men left the base with Ramesses himself leading them. This leads us to the Battle of Kadesh which is a very significant ancient battle and as such we intend to devote next week's entire podcast episode to the battle itself. So we're not going to cover this battle in detail this week purely because we intend to focus on the lifetime of Ramesses II and his life. What we will say is that the battle was a considerable battle of wits and tactics between two great armies. The Hittites had the upper hand before retaliation by the Egyptians caused the Hittites to flee. Upon chasing the Hittites away, the Egyptians had put their remaining units in a vulnerable position and they then too had to retreat. So the result of the battle was a bit of a stalemate. Ramesses had settled for the decision to put the Hittite city of Kadesh under siege, but this proved to be an inconclusive action as Ramesses decided to head back to Egypt safe in the knowledge that things could have turned out to be a lot worse but that the Hittites now had first-hand experience of what it was like to be in the heat of battle with the Egyptians and would not underestimate their abilities next time. So it could be even translated as a bit of a moral victory for Ramesses, all things considered. After the battle... In more modern years, the study of ancient history in the Near East has excited debate about the accuracy of the stories contained in the Tanakh, otherwise known as the Hebrew Bible. It appears that biblical stories 
are gaining more credibility as archaeological studies seem to support that the general thread of the biblical narrative at the very least is based on true occurrences. Whenever we talk of the period in ancient history that surrounds the period in time close to the late Bronze Age collapse, we talk of sea peoples migrating around the lands and seas of the eastern Mediterranean and the emergence of new kingdoms and geopolitical areas such as Israel, Judah, Philistia and Phoenicia. There is enough in the way of archaeological evidence to suggest that the Hebrew Bible is constructed from contemporary written sources that are based on the events starting from around 1200 BCE. However, historians are trying to cover the remaining cracks and this means trying to go backwards in the biblical texts from the corroborated stories. This leads us back to the story of Moses and the Exodus and this subject excites debate about its historical viability. Now, to try and give the story of Moses and the Exodus over to you in a brief synopsis, the story starts with Hebrew slaves in Egypt working for the tyrannical Egyptian pharaoh. Moses appealed to the pharaoh to release the Hebrews, but the pharaoh was against the idea. Moses would escape with the Hebrew slaves with the help of Yahweh, otherwise referred to as God, and would lead them all on a long journey to the promised land. These freed Hebrew slaves were the Israelites, otherwise the people of God. The point of this story is the fact that in modern times, the Pharaoh in this story has been suggested to be Ramesses II, and there is a reason for this. It's because one of the cities named in the Hebrew Bible is the city of Ramesses, and the most obvious settlement that this could refer to is Pyramesses. Now this is where the debate gets interesting because Pyramesses was constructed around the modern military centre near the old Hyksos capital of Avaris. It's the very same one that we mentioned that Ramesses set off with his army from when heading off to the Battle of Kadesh. So, if the biblical city of Ramesses was Pyramesses, then the Hebrew Exodus could not have happened before the reign of Ramesses II. However, the problem is that there is no written evidence of a Hebrew Exodus from Egypt. In fact, it is suspected that the actual Israelites were always in the lands of the Levant. There is no categorical proof either way. Some have suspected that the expulsion of the Hyksos from Egypt could represent the exodus of Asiatic peoples from Egypt. This would be fine, but then the Hyksos disappearance from Egypt happened 250 years before Ramesses II was even born. So he couldn't have been the pharaoh in the story, and Pyramesses couldn't have been the biblical city of Ramesses. One thought that crossed my mind would be that if we wanted to assume that Ramesses II was the pharaoh mentioned in the story of the Exodus, and if we wanted to assume that Pyramesses is the biblical city of Ramesses, then why would we not consider the Sheridan Sea pirates in with all of this? Ramesses himself states that they had an alliance with the Hittites, so this would explain the knowledge and subsequent possession of advanced weaponry. If you knew of the Hittites, the chances are that the geographical links would mean that you would know of the Phoenicians, and if you were closely linked to them, you then you would have had a good knowledge of maritime transportation, and if you were Asiatic, then you may fancy your chances better against the Egyptian military if you came via the sea route. The Hittites would be all for supporting this if it weakened their bitter rivals, the Egyptians. It may be that those captured Sheridan were turned into Egyptian slaves and possibly Ramesses conscripted them into his own army, especially with their knowledge of the Hittites that would have carried great value to the Egyptians. So maybe it was the Sheridan people who were the Hebrew peoples escaping Egypt 
and settling the land of Israel. It's a bit out there, even for me. So I'd like someone to step forward and tell me why my theory would be impossible. Regardless, it's all just wild speculation really, and a distraction from the known story of Ramesses II. So let's get back on track. It does appear that after all this military campaigning that can often be a quick responsibility of a new king needing to establish himself from all those peoples wishing to challenge his authority, that there was indeed a period of relative peacefulness within the kingdom. This is when Ramesses turned more attention to his construction projects. Construction Ramesses II was a pharaoh who is very well known for the construction projects that took place during his reign. Now, it probably would be too much to give him any credit for the temple complex of his father, Seti I, in the Theban necropolis. That was probably the work of his father himself, as great constructions were made during Seti's own lifetime, and was probably the source of Ramesses' own great passion for it. We mentioned Pier Ramesses, the new capital city constructed by Ramesses and located near the Hyksos capital of Avaris. Pyramides started out as a military centre with minimal royal buildings and temples, but Ramesses' constructions there expanded the nucleus by around 10 square kilometres. Whether its name comes from Ramesses himself or his grandfather is unclear, but the city grew into its name as it became the legacy of Ramesses II. In the south, the notable construction was the Ramesseum, a memorial temple dedicated to Ramesses near Thebes. Particularly prominent are the stonework carvings which depict the mighty victory over the Hittites, for which we have already questioned whether it was truly a victory. This didn't matter to Ramesses. The moral victory, which we suggested earlier, was absolutely substantial enough for him to glorify it to his subjects as an historic victory against a formidable foe. Even further south, at the second cataract of the Nile, Ramesses constructed two huge temples cut into a solid rock cliff at a location called Abu Simbel. The temples are constructed in commemoration to the Pharaoh Ramesses II himself and his great wife Nefertari. The temples are notable for their 20 metre tall colossi of Ramesses himself sitting regally over the entrance as well as other colossi also carved into the rock. The temples are also decorated with commemorations of Ramesses' great military victories. Interestingly though, it has been difficult for historians to pinpoint a date of construction for these temples. Some have suggested it was during the 1260s, which would have been within the lifetime of Nefertari. Others have suggested that the location of the second cataract would have been an unlikely choice until maybe the 1240s, due to the political situation between the Egyptians and the Nubians. However, it is very important to state that the pharaoh lost his wife Nefertari in around the mid-1250s, so this may have a significance as the temples may have been constructed after her death, because it does appear that Ramesses II had a genuine love for Nefertari. They were barely teenagers when they were married, but due to the high standing of their parents and families, they may well have been familiar with each other as children. Nefertari would give Ramesses II at least six children. Statues and depictions of Nefertari are relatively common. There are records of her accompanying her husband on campaigns. Ramesses would write poetry for Nefertari, describing her as the lady of the two lands, the bride of God and the sweet of love. She was a well-respected political figure and Ramesses would build the largest and most beautiful tomb in the Valley of Queens at the Theban necropolis. We do not know how she died. 
So regardless of the fact that pharaohs could often have multiple wives, none more so than Ramesses himself, who is believed to have had at least seven other wives, it does clearly seem like Nefertari was his favourite and she was his true companion and the love of his life. Before she died, she made a personal effort to contact the Hittite royal family and send them gifts as goodwill gestures between the two empires who had managed to negotiate a peace treaty with each other. The First Peace Treaty It is suggested that tens of thousands of men were engaged in battle at the Battle of Kadesh and if the summaries of historical battles such as the Battle of Megiddo some 200 years previous, then a considerable amount of people would have died. And in the case of Kadesh, not a lot was achieved by either side. The Egyptians had been battling for the lands of the Levant for quite some time. From the 15th century BCE, the new kingdom of Egypt had come into direct conflict with the dominant force in the region, the Mitanni. During the 14th century BCE, the Mitanni had weakened and the Hittites took advantage of their western provinces and by default this would bring the Hittites into direct conflict with the Egyptians. It was during this century that the Mitanni began to crumble from within and the Assyrian element in its political system standing up for itself and taking over. In the meantime, Hittites and Egyptians continued to struggle for Levantine lands right through into the current 13th century BCE, but now the Middle Assyrian Empire had become an expanding entity and it was looking at the lands of the Levant. Both the Hittites and the Egyptians recognised the Assyrians as a viable threat to their interests. Muwatali II was the Hittite king when Ramesses engaged with the Hittites at Kadesh in 1274 BCE. It was now the 1250s and there was a different king on the Hittite throne, Muwatali's brother Hattusheli III. Both Ramesses II and Hattusheli III recognised the Assyrian threat and agreed to negotiate about it. It is not known where the agreement took place or whether the two monarchs actually met each other. But with the growing Assyrian threat, the Egyptians and the Hittites didn't have to like each other. But instead, they needed to have a strong diplomatic understanding. How do we know about the treaty? Amazingly, we have recovered both an Egyptian version from Egypt and a Hittite version from Anatolia. So we have a representation of the treaty from both participants. Essentially, the treaty, which was agreed in 1258 BCE, pledged that both Egypt and the Hittites would not battle again for Levantine lands and that a border would be agreed. This alone suggests that the losses at the Battle of Kadesh must have been high, even though we have no record for it. Both parties must have been fearful of the potential loss of resources of another battle of the same scale and how openly vulnerable they would be to an Assyrian attack. This relates to the other major point of the treaty, which was the agreement that both parties would support each other in the event of attack, either from internal rebellion or from a third party. So although the Assyrians were not specifically named, they had to be the suggested aggressor in this hypothetical scenario created by the words of the treaty. Another instance where we have seen this kind of agreement previously in the History of the World podcast is in the case of the Romans and the Carthaginian Sicilians agreeing not to attack each other while the Epirates of the Balkan Peninsula was attacking them both in the 3rd century BCE. 
and we found out about this back in episode 9. Much as the Romans and the Carthaginians didn't like each other, they both knew that it was sensible to not exhaust their valuable resources against each other when there was a valid third party threat. One thing that the Romans and the Carthaginians did not pledge to do however was to defend each other should one party be attacked by a third party. The Hittites and the Egyptians actually went this far with their own treaty such was the threat of the Assyrians and they needed their own enemy to be strong to ultimately protect their own interests. This is the earliest known peace treaty between two nations and as such it has become a highly regarded historical event and document. A copy of the Hittite version, written in cuneiform, was presented as a gift from the Turkish government to the United Nations and this replica is now mounted on the walls of the United Nations headquarters based in the American city of New York. Later Life So, the reign of Ramesses II was an incredible period in the history of Egypt. We saw a major conflict between the Egyptians and the Hittites at Kadesh, which must have been so bad that the two kingdoms did not attack each other again, and as such brought about a peace treaty which was so highly regarded that inscriptions of the treaty were found at two of Ramesses' major Egyptian constructions the Ramesseum near Thebes and the great Hippostyle Hall at the Karnak Temple Complex, another great construction of the age of Ramesses II. We also see that the considerable diplomatic efforts were being made by the pharaoh's great wife Nefertari in the form of letters and gifts to the Hittite royal family. After Nefertari's untimely death, Within three years of the agreement, we also see intermarriage between the two royal families, not least of all with Ramesses II himself marrying at least two Hittite princesses. Within the first 100 years of the treaty, all Hittite and Egyptian influences over the Levantine lands had disappeared, as had the Hittite Empire in general and within the next 100 years, the Egyptian New Kingdom was history too. Ramesses II was in his 50s and it would be this soon that he was without his beloved great wife Nefertari I, but he would still have a great many wives and dozens of children. Now that he had been the reigning monarch of Egypt for 30 years, he would be able to take part in his first Heb Sed, or Sed Festival. What we can gather about the Egyptian said festival is that it was an Egyptian tradition that dated as far back as the original unification of Egypt by Menes almost 2,000 years previous. The first said festival of a pharaoh would take place after 30 years of rule and then traditionally every three years thereafter. These festivals were also designed to give the pharaoh greater and greater spiritual power and it could even be argued that Ramesses II may have also been deified during his lifetime, something that was very rare. Now that Ramesses was in his later years, the question of who would succeed him was becoming more and more relevant. Due to Ramesses' own longevity, he would start to outlive his potential heirs. The firstborn son of Ramesses and Nefertari called Amenhotep probably died not long after his mother in the mid 1250s. One of Ramesses' other prominent great royal wives was a woman called Iset Nofret, who was the mother of a prince called Ramesses, who would become the crown prince and intended heir after the death of Amenhotep. He would be the crown prince for a further 25 years. By this time, Ramesses II himself must have been in advance of his own 70th birthday. The crown prince Ramesses would not live long enough to become the pharaoh, 
as his father would outlive him also. During this period, however, yet another of Ramesses II and Isetnofret's sons would become a significant figure in Egyptian society as a priest and an antiquarian who restored lost Egyptian temples and restored historical Egyptian traditions based on the artefacts that he discovered and categorised. His name was Chaim Waset and he would surely be ideal for the succession now that the crown prince Ramesses was gone. Five years after the death of crown prince Ramesses, Chaim Waset also died. Ramesses II was still alive and had been Egypt's pharaoh for over 55 years. In total, 12 princes had been lined up to succeed Pharaoh Ramesses II, and Ramesses II himself outlived them all. In 1224 BCE, and as Ramesses II was approaching the grand age of 80, he would name another of his sons by Isetnofret, namely Merneptah. It is supposed that Merneptah's duties as the crown prince would have been very involved considering the advanced age of his father. However, it is believed that Merneptah himself must have been well into his 50s when this opportunity came his way. So he was by no means a young man himself. Ramesses II was now in his 80s and suffering from arthritis and hardening of the arteries which was causing him to walk in a stooped manner and it seems as though he had developed a very painful abscess by his teeth. Ultimately, and in the year 1213 BCE, at the grand age of 90, Ramesses II died. He had outlived many of his wives and even his own children. His passing symbolised the passing of a great golden age in Egyptian history. In fact, things would never be the same again, as the kingdom was now entering the period which we know as the Late Bronze Age Collapse. His son, Merneptah, would indeed succeed him as pharaoh, probably almost 70 years old himself. Nonetheless, Merneptah was still able to dish out a good beating to the Libyans, as his great father would have done before him. Ramesses II reigned over a glorious kingdom which saw great advances in military prowess and great constructions which survive as an awesome legacy to his reign throughout the 13th century BCE to this very day. He epitomised the great Egyptian rise from the political uncertainty and instability of the Amarna period. He continued the good work of his predecessors and made Egypt great again. After the time of the Battle of Kadesh, Egypt's area of influence had never been greater. The kingdom stretched from the environs of Kadesh, of modern-day Syria, in the north, and stretched down the Levant coastline, including Damascus and Megiddo, across Sinai to the new capital city at Pyramuses, and then up the Nile, past Memphis and Thebes, before going on to the cataracts, including the second cataract, where the temple structure was built at Abu Simbel, all the way south to the fourth cataract at Napata. There will always be those who debate whether Ramesses II was the best pharaoh that Egypt ever had, and that is debatable to put it mildly. The reason why Ramesses II got his own podcast was because his reign is absolutely iconic of the new kingdom of Egypt and his longevity meant that he was able to complete projects that other pharaohs may not have lived long enough to achieve. The wealth of the country meant that he was able to leave a legacy of incredible constructions which also tell us stories of the politics of Egypt. Some may call him the expert of his own propaganda. 
but I'd challenge them to show me any great ancient leader, and indeed more recent leader, that didn't use propaganda to enhance their influence. Ramesses II's mummified corpse was discovered at the Valley of Kings within the Theban necropolis in 1881, a time when Egyptology was of great interest. The mummy was contained at the Valley of Kings until it was decided that it may deteriorate and should be removed. After being transported to Paris in France in the 1970s for inspection and preservation, it has been sent back to Egypt where it can be found today in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. Thank you very much for listening to this first profile episode of this History of the World podcast series. This will be the first of many and now we've come such a long way, haven't we? We've started off at the prehistoric era where you could never name any one individual and those who you did discover like Lucy and right the way through to Utsi the Iceman, we had a major limit to the amount of information that we could tell you about them. Now we're really into the faces of our history. Ramesses II, we was able to devote 40 minutes of podcast to him and that's a testament now to how far we've come in the series and the story that we're able now to cover such important and illustrative figures in our history. And of course it doesn't end there. We wouldn't be doing any justice to the battles of ancient history if we didn't cover the Battle of Kadesh, probably the most famous battle in ancient history. So next week we're going to stay within this period and we're going to look in detail at the Battle of Kadesh. We mentioned it in this podcast, we mentioned it in the Hittites podcast. It was such an important event and it, the, the politics of it, um, it really did influence a lot to do with the uh, many of the empires and kingdoms of the region at the time. So it's an incredibly important battle. Now, it's that time of year, um, and it's the first one that we've uh, encountered. I think it's an annual thing, so uh, it's the British Podcast Awards. So if you enjoy the History of the World podcast, and if you would like to look out for the History of the World podcast going forwards, give it some recognition, then please do go to the website uh, for the British Podcast Awards. We have posted links to it on the Facebook page and on the Twitter page. And uh, the link is uh, www.britishpodcastawards.com and forward slash vote. So if you go to that uh, address, you'll be able to search for the History of the World podcast. We're in amongst that great long list of podcasts that you can search for in the box there. And just click on the History of the World podcast, register your vote, and we'll see whether we get any recognition back from it. So please do vote and uh, don't hesitate, do it now because I think um, I think it's only open for another three or four days, the voting, so go and get it done now. Once again, I do it every week, I know, but I hate to let it go unnoticed. Thank you very much to Ryan Stitt from the History of Ancient Greece podcast for promoting the History of the World podcast. Thank you so much indeed. I can always see it makes a difference. I can see that the social media does give me a response to it, so it really does make a difference, so thank you. Now, one of the reasons why I started the History of the World podcast was because I felt that there was a distinct lack of information regarding prehistory within the podcast network. Since starting the project, um, people have been sort of bringing things to my attention Um, and um, Joel McKinnon who is the creator of the Planet and Sky Rock Opera which I mentioned a few podcasts back and I do strongly recommend you listen to so if you have not listened to Planet and Sky please look it up and listen to it, enjoy it Um, I would strongly recommend the podcast version of it because it gives you a, a backdrop story to the to the music itself which is which is quite uh which is quite good to to accompany the whole 
musical experience. Um, basically, the reason I brought up Joel McKinnon is because he brought to my attention um, the Insight podcast, which uh, t- which tackles the issue of prehistory, and uh, they've had a recent episode with Chris Stringer, who's a highly respected um, prehistoric scientist from the Natural History Museum, and uh, you see him uh, you see him a lot to do with anthropological study, paleoanthropological study, I should say, um, on TV documentaries, etc. He's a highly respected man in his field, so um, that's a, another podcast worth listening to. And I shall post a link. I shall I shall insert it into the recommended podcast page on the History of the World podcast network uh, website. So thank you very much, Mr. McKinnon, for that. Now, last week's podcast, I um, I chastised the entire country of Canada. And the reason being is because I felt that not enough Apple podcast reviews have been submitted from that country. As the figures showed that there are listeners, there are plenty of listeners in Canada, but only one review, which really didn't do Canada a lot of justice. So what I did, I appealed to the whole Canadian nation of History of the World podcast listeners to go to Apple Podcasts, write a review and give a star review on there. And uh, one person did that, so one's better than none. So thank you very much to Melissa Weber, who was kind enough to write a review on the Canadian iTunes Apple Podcasts page for History of the World Podcast. So thank you very, very much indeed. So this week I've got a new target. It's going to be the listeners from New Zealand. I know that there are listeners in New Zealand Let's see whether the New Zealanders can beat the Canadians and exceed more than one podcast review this week on Apple Podcasts. So that's the challenge for all New Zealanders listening to the History of the World podcast. Can you please go to Apple Podcasts, give me a five-star rating and a nice review saying how wonderful the podcast is and uh, let's uh, see if you can top the Canadians. Now... Listen, um, this podcast, it does need your support. There's no two ways about it. It really does need your support. Um, the The production of the podcast does cost um, a few a few pounds, I can tell you that much. Um, the hosting of the website, the hosting of the podcast itself and the distribution platform and uh, the books which I choose to buy in order to enhance the uh, the the information contained within the podcast. Now, they all have an expense. So I appeal to you to visit the Patreon page, of which you can uh, find links to it on the social media pages and on the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website. So please go there and visit the Patreon page. If you can only donate a dollar or two dollars per month, it would be great. However... If you don't feel like that you want to part a company with your hard-earned money, and often I should say, why should you? The History of the World podcast is always meant to be a free resource anyway. Um, but if you if you don't have the, uh, the ability to make any financial contribution towards the podcast, then please do write reviews and, uh, and spread the word about the podcast because that in itself is just as valuable when I look at my uh, my fellow podcasters and how much support they give me in terms of promoting the podcast and how much that has generated for me that's um, that's one of the things that really has helped the podcast and also I, I believe that the uh, the that the uh, YouTube channel that uh, now that we're affiliated with, uh, the study of antiquity in the Middle Ages published its first um, representation of the history of the world podcast um, visually on the late Bronze Age collapse, and the video itself has had over seven thousand views. So that's really good, and I'm sure that has um, pointed some new listeners in our direction. So if you've come from the study of antiquity in the Middle Ages YouTube channel. Welcome to the History of the World podcast and I hope I can entertain you for many, many 
weeks, months and years to come. Now, if you go to the History of the World podcast um, website and go to the page containing all of the podcasts for Volume 2, so there's a link to Volume 2. If you go down to Episode 6, there's a little link that says YouTube, so you can go directly to the video and watch the video of the Late Bronze Age Collapse um, episode. And uh, even if it's just out of curiosity, just go and give it a, a little listen and a thumbs up. We got another kind comment from E.G. Young through the CastBox forum who said, I'm consistently amazed at how informative your podcast is. I found you on CastBox and I'm now into volume two. I listen every day. Keep up the good work, Eric from California. There are a number of us podcasters, I think, who do take a lot of pride in the quality of the information within our podcasts. And, I, you know, I don't pretend to be as good as some of the other people that are out there producing podcasts, but... I really do try and emulate them and put as much into it as I can do. And I hope at the very least it's entertaining for some people, which it does appear to be. So very heartwarming to read your um, your feedback and, and everyone's feedback means an immense amount to me. So thank you very much indeed. Uh, well, look, that's going to be it for this week. I'm afraid that it's gone on long enough again, so I've been rambling on about all and sundry, and it's now time to let you go and enjoy your week again. Until next week, where we will be discovering more about the Battle of Kadesh. Highly anticipated. It's been a long time coming. Episode 17, next week, the Battle of Kadesh. One to really look forward to. Thank you ever so much for listening again, and I bid you all... A wonderful week until we meet again. The History of the World podcast is available on many different podcast platforms. So please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the Support the Podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr.